Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. As always, I am your host, Dr. Alexandra E. Hughes, and this is the podcast where we talk all things student conduct. It's summer. It's hot. And in South Texas, oh my goodness, I don't know if it's hot where you are, but I need a reprieve from the hotness. But we're just halfway through the summer, so I have a long way to go. Before we get into cooler temperatures, uh, I hope this podcast finds you well wherever you are on the interwebs, day, night, driving somewhere, not driving somewhere, wherever this may find you. Uh, For today's episode, we have a very special guest, and I'm actually really excited about this episode because, I mean, our guest was just sharing so much amazing information on student conduct and really just talking about the sacred work that we do as student conduct officers. And I mean, it was it was just amazing to hear. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. So our guest is going to be Sarah McDowell-Shupp, and she is the director of the Office of Student Conduct at Shippensburg University. As a one-person office, Sarah oversees the entire process for general misconduct, academic integrity, and organizational misconduct. She also serves on the university care team and assists students in crisis. In addition to her role at Shippensburg University, Sarah is a third year doctoral student at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, studying administration and leadership in education. Her research interests include exploring college students' experiences with student conduct programs through narrative inquiry and examining policies, procedures, and environments through a critical lens. Sarah also volunteers with national fraternity and sorority organizations as a speaker and facilitator on leadership, risk management, and equity and inclusion issues. When she's not working or writing, you can usually find her sampling beer at a local brewery, traveling with family and friends, relaxing with her pug Coda and cat Phoenix. I hope that everyone enjoys this episode, and I look forward to seeing everyone on the interwebs soon. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast show. How are you? Hello. I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for like, just, you know, just being here and putting up with like my craziness and me just saying, oh my goodness, we have to have you and just everything. I appreciate that. I just appreciate you so much. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. And um, I'm going to quote like what our students say. I think we just have a vibe. So I feel like we're vibing and we can just... We can just do that. That's what yes. the, I think they say, you know the vibe now. <laughs> we're getting so, oh goodness, we're getting so old. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's scary because I really thought that I would always stay in a place to where I would know, I would always be able to understand and know what the young people are talking about. Mm-mm. And then I'm getting letters and numbers <laughs> and emojis and this, and I'm like, and I feel like my mother, and I don't know how I feel about that. Like. I have, stu- I have had a student tell me last fall, 
um, she said, Hey, do you have any kids? And I said, no, I don't. She goes, Oh, cause I'm getting a lot of mom vibes from you. And I was like, Oh, here it comes. It's happening. Like I've now, like I've now started either saying or having mannerisms like a mom. And, um, yeah, I, I often find that when I have to put in footnotes into an investigative report that translate what a student says, like, oh, so-and-so said they're going to do this on site, and I have to translate for my board members. I'm like, that means that they're going to fight that person the next time they see them. So I'm constantly having to, like, look up terms, look up phrases, because students say things, and my accomplished veteran board members um, are not that connected with youth culture. So, yeah. 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 And honestly, we're starting to become, I think we stay connected yes. more than your average, you know, person, adult. Oh yeah. Older mm -hmm. adult because we work at universe. So it forces us to be aware, but then it's uh -huh. still starting to hit us. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, I, I don't know how I feel about this. So, uh -huh. but anyways, that's a whole nother tangent um, that <laughs> I will not go often because we do that. So for our audience, if you will, Will you please just introduce yourself, who you are, how you got into student conduct and whatever you're comfortable sharing on a recorded podcast. So just sure. for everyone so they know all about you. Yeah, awesome. So currently I'm the director of the Office of Student Conduct at Shippensburg University. And I have been at SHIP for eight years as a professional. And I've been lucky enough to work in three very different offices. And previous to SHIP, I had worked uh, at Towson University and Stevenson University in the Baltimore area, which is where I'm originally from. But I had gone to graduate school at Shippensburg. And so <clears throat> When an opportunity came up about eight years ago to come back, I took it and I actually ran our drug and alcohol education and prevention program for a couple of years. And then I moved over into the career center for a couple of years. And then I was actually asked to take over conduct in March of 2018. And I, um, it was presented in such a way where I, um, was excited to take on something totally different, but also knew that I had very little experience with conduct I had served on at that at previously judicial boards. And I had in the drug and alcohol program, I had worked with conduct to get those referrals to uh, the program I was running. But so I was asked to take over student conduct and I did a mid-semester transition and cobbled together a couple months of figuring out what the heck I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then actually attended the Gearing Academy that summer figured out exactly what I was supposed to be doing as professional. And then since then, um, I think I would probably, I, you know, I, I feel like I say to a lot of folks that this is the most fun job I have ever had. This is the coolest thing I've ever done in student affairs. And I really have found a love and a passion for student conduct. And wildly enough, it is not something I would have ever considered when I was in graduate school or even when I was looking for jobs, um, I kind of was like, oh my God, no, I wouldn't want to do student conduct. But after being in it and part of my role, I get to work with our care team and our behavior intervention team. So I get some other experiences uh, with students in crisis. And there are just certain parts of this job that I absolutely love. Um, and I find that, and I found that once I started my graduate uh, school, my doc, my doc work in the fall of 18, that's when it really started to connect for me, when I started looking at the literature and the history of the field and getting more involved in ACSA and um, really looking at the history of our field, the important work that we do, and then how do I connect that to the current practice that I'm, that I'm leading at Shippensburg University. And so I really kind of just fell in love with the work and, um, yeah, it's, it, it is the most fun. No job is, is, you know, it's, it's interesting because we 
um, constantly work, you know, what does the code say? What does our process say? So there's this process and there's this outline, but every situation is so different and so nuanced and so complicated. And I think I love the problem solving piece of that, the service to the student piece of that, and then also looking at where we see some gaps in policy or procedure that we have to shore up and, and try to be as um, inclusive and fair as possible. Um, so I just really love the work that I do. And, and I have been a student affairs professional for about 14 years and conduct is absolutely the place I'd like to be. Conduct so. is everything. I mean, obviously yeah. I'm, you know, clearly biased <laughs> for conduct. But let me ask this question. When you were sold the dream of conduct, was it was the dream you were sold the reality that you got? <laughs> um, I you know I'm trying to remember. I, I think the conversation was just like, hey, we would really like you to run student conduct. Would you like to do that? And I was like, um, yeah, sure. Uh, can I think about it? And they were like, yeah, you can have um, two days to think about it, and then they come back like, and let us know. So we're trying to say uh -uh, we have to get you to say yes. Right. So I immediately, <laughs> yep. So I immediately called. Um, so I literally that day, I walked out of that meeting and I, and I remember actually, I, this is such a weird thing, but I remember I was pinching the inside of my hand going, don't drop your jaw right now. Because I was like, this is such an unexpected and odd thing to happen. And I was like, okay, don't freak out. Just listen to what they have to say. And then we're going to figure it out. So I remember I, I called uh, two mentors of mine who are both folks that work in Dean of Students roles or Title IX roles. And I said, hey, this is what I'm being offered. What questions do I need to ask? What do I need to do? And both of them were like, you need to go to Garing. You need to join ASCA, possibly a TICSA. You need to look at these other professional organizations. And they were like, you're going to love it. You should say yes, and you're going to love it. But there wasn't, I don't, I think what I, when I first got into it, what I expected to do was to deal with defensive and angry students and parents. Mm -hmm. And that's what I thought the job was going to be, was constantly dealing with angry students or angry people. And then once I got into the work, um, it, it was so different. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, and, and it was one of these things where I realized that the position in conduct and anyone that works in conduct, we have a lot of power. And even though in my daily life, and in, the, and in my university and, and in other areas, I don't always feel like I have power, don't always feel like I have any, um, any authority, but I, but I do in my role. And I think that's a lot of what I've learned over the last couple of years is how do I use that power appropriately? And how do I protect students? Because I view student conduct work first and foremost as a protection of students' rights. Mm -hmm. So yes, we hold students accountable. Yes, we want them to have moral and ethical development. Yes, we want them to learn and we want them to make better decisions. And we want to have, you know, process and procedure that is defendable if, if, if necessary by outside folks. But I think first and foremost, our role is really as protectors of students, protectors of the process and protectors of rights. And so that's kind of, I never imagined that as part of working in conduct. I thought conduct was going to be, you know, talking with students, trying to help them make better decisions, dealing with, you know, angry and defensive uh, students and their, and their families and, and other folks. But it really um, has become and evolved into a different role. 
And I say, and I will say that that role is sometimes in conflict with other colleagues at the university, um, with other folks outside the university. You know, I've often felt like sometimes I'm the sole voice uh, protesting a certain action or something that's going to happen because, you know, I know that ethically, legally, morally, um, it's going to violate students' rights, or it may violate students' rights, or it may have the perception of violating their rights. So sometimes I feel like I'm that sole voice that's saying, no, we can't do it this way because of X, Y, or Z. Um, and I really see that as my role. So I think if you, it's funny because if you ask students, right, if you ask students what we do in student conduct, I'm sure they would give you a lot of varied answers. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I think they probably don't always know is that that's what all of us do. Like we're all protecting the process. We are all protecting their rights. We are all making sure that no matter how we feel about a situation or feel about someone's actions, that their rights are protected um, and that their, that their process, that we're making the process as equitable and as fair as we can for them. And I didn't expect that when I started this work. I didn't even think about that part of the job really. I, so I kind of want to touch on that. Um, you know, I love the way you phrased it. You said like protector of, of rights and how we, we really didn't let me rephrase that. Before getting into this line of work, you don't necessarily realize that. And I think perception, right? So the perception mm -hmm. of, I think, other departments at the institution, and it always catches, I mean, faculty members especially, um, but just people off guard because we get these reports to our office and I think people automatically expect that we're gonna say, oh, we're kicking you out. We're expelling you, we're suspending you, you're in trouble, you 100 community service hour, whatever it is. But I'd say more, I don't know what the percentage is, 60% of the time, it's actually the opposite of that. And turning around and saying, well, actually, you know, in this particular case, you know, Professor XYZ, <clears throat> you violated uh -huh. student ABC's rights in this classroom when you told them and they had to go and you said you weren't yeah. gonna do this and whatever, whatever, and kick them out. And, uh, I don't necessarily know if that's really as widely discussed as it should be, right? And it's so, mm -hmm. it's, and I, I really think about like the work that we do is advocacy. Oh um, gosh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a better, like, I'm really an advocate, which is so interesting because a lot of times in student rights, we're the ones, I don't want to say at odds with advocates, you get what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. a lot of times we're at odds with advocates because they think that we are like on one side and we're like, no, we are really talking about the process and we're trying Absolutely. to be as fair and equitable as we can. And we're on all sides and we're on all sides. I'm yeah. not on the student side or the university side. You know, I think one of the, one of those key things is like, you know, objectivity is not real. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my, my perspective is you can't really be objective, like in, in student conduct matters, you can't really be objective. And I don't think that being objective is the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal should be, and I'm going to mispronounce this word. I think it's multi-partiality. Okay. I think that's how you say it, but the goal is basically to be able to see every part of the conflict, to be able to see and understand and have empathy and compassion and offered on all sides. So, you know, that's that is, but I think you're exactly right. I think that is the expectation 
And some of what I find that I have to do is manage expectations when things come up to my office and I look at these referrals and I'm like, this really isn't a conduct violation and it shouldn't be handled through the conduct process. But let me try to help you mediate this or let's see what else we could do here. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes I have the conversation with faculty when I say, hey, so your syllabus is really uh, not fair. And we need to talk about some of these things that you're including here and some of the, the you know, quote, punishments that you're including in your syllabus are actually violating student rights and, and maybe state law. So maybe yeah. we need to rework this. Um, so those are, but again, I think the expectation is, you know, well, this student did this to me or did that to me. And then, you know, so you've got to put, you've got to have discipline. and. And I feel like sometimes, you know, I don't always say this to my colleagues, but sometimes I want to say like, they're allowed to argue with you. Students are allowed to challenge you. They're allowed to argue with you. They're allowed to tell you things you don't want to hear. They're allowed to make statements. You know, there's, they're allowed to do these things. And just because you don't like it doesn't make it a conduct violation and doesn't make it a discipline issue. And I think we're, you know, we're still struggling with some of the, uh, you know, in loco parentis issues where sometimes colleagues or other folks want you to come in and be like the parent that has a, I, I actually had a conversation with a colleague recently that said, well, um, you know, we just want you to, to give the student a talking to. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's not, that's, if oh you have God. a conflict with, Right. And if you have a conflict with the student, then I need you to actively engage in the process with me and the student can engage and we can teach the student how to mediate conflict, because that is also our role as educators and staff members and faculty is to teach students these skills, which include being able to mediate conflict and being able to resolve differences and, and to be civil in the workplace, in the in the classroom with each other. Um, so no, we don't have a talking to as part of our as part of our outcomes. Though sometimes I think folks want us to do that. Oh yeah, um, all the time they yeah. want it to, they want to kind of just refer it over and us to to handle that when in fact that's not it. Um, but we see yep. that in a lot of different instances. Okay, so you're going to be a doctor because you're in doc school, right? Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I, and that's just I, I'm just going to say my apologies right now because and my condolences because that's who. But I am <laughs> here for you. So. Part of our conversation, um, which we're really getting into now, um, is the fact that when you got into this line of work and you were asked to do this and you started looking at these things and getting all the cases and you know really just diving into student conduct, you realized that there were some things or you noticed that there were some things in the field of student conduct that started interesting you to really mm -hmm. dive deeper into like your particular dissertation topic and even, and I'll have to share with share with our audience, you're actually gonna be working with Gearing Academy this summer as well. Yes. Um, so if the people are gonna want more of you, I already know this, they get to get more of you this summer. <laughs> so I kind of just combine two things there, right? But like, could mm -hmm. you share a little bit about like your dissertation, which is really about student conduct and the history of it. And I just think that's so yes. valuable for people to understand. Um, and kind of like where, where you went, why you went there, sure, all of that. Yeah. So, um, when I started in conduct, I started noticing anecdotally the students being referred to the office, the language being used to describe those students and what identities did those students hold? And I started seeing some patterns. So I work at a predominantly white institution that is about, I think 72% white. 
Um, and then a variety of um, some other identities. Our largest after white is uh, Black or African-American students, which I think sits at about 13 or 14 percent. And so then there's some other percentages of, of some other ethnicities and races. But what I'm noticing is, you know, if our campus is 72 percent white, then 72 percent of my referrals, in theory, should be white students. And they were not. And I was noticing that I was seeing a disparate rate of um, students that identify as students of color, mainly students that identify as Black or African American, being referred. And what I was noticing too was that the sometimes the language and the referral was different. Um, I was noticing that students of color were more likely to be described as threatening or aggressive um, for exhibiting behaviors that uh, that me as a conduct officer would not categorize as threatening or aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, it kind of started this, this thought in the back of my brain, you know, when we think about systems of oppression and we think about um, racism at an institutional level and at a broader level, what, is that, what does that look like? And we look at standards of behavior. We could have a whole other podcast on white supremacy and student conduct work, but knowing that what we do and the systems that we uphold through our codes of conduct can be racist and sexist and, and all of those other things. So I'm noticing, you know, so I'm noticing more students of color being referred and I'm noticing just a, a different categorization of those, of the behaviors of those students, while the behaviors are similar to what white students are also being referred to. I was just noticing some difference there. And then when I started my doc work, um, I had a wonderful professor. I'm going to give her a shout out. Her name's Dr. Crystal Machado. She's at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And okay. she had, yeah, and she had us write for one of our papers in her class. What was our motivating dissatisfaction? What is something in our current work or a thought or um, in, the, in the field that we work in that we are dissatisfied with? And what do we want to know about that? And so she calls it, you know, this motivating dissatisfaction. And I said, I'm interested in race, in student conduct work, and I'm interested to know if some of the patterns that we see in K through 12 discipline and in the US criminal justice system, I'm interested to see if those patterns exist in student conduct work. And what I found was we don't really know if those patterns exist, or at least there's not any peer reviewed published studies out there specifically about that. What I did find is in K through 12, a massive amount of information and literature, decades of literature looking at the disparate rates of uh, specifically exclusionary discipline for students. We know that, and I'm not going to cite all the authors because I can't remember them all, but we know that um, Black students are uh, expelled and excluded from school at multiple times higher than white students, higher than Hispanic students um, or Latino students. They are um, consistently uh, referred multiple times for exclusionary discipline. We know on the criminal justice side that there are massive amounts of disparate rates at both arrests, conviction, and incarcerations. And what we also know is that students who do get suspended or expelled from K through 12 discipline have a much higher risk of being arrested, incarcerated, or victims of crime as adults. So things that happen to uh, students in K through 12 with regard to student discipline can affect them for a long time. So my motivating dissatisfaction and really what got me thinking about that was how does student conduct impact college students? Mm -hmm. What happens when we are looking at a predominantly white institution that, that has operated, was founded on uh, what's good for white men, 
what does that look like when the entire system, our code of conduct, our policies has been written with white students in mind, with white students centered as kind of like the neutral or the, the default? What is that experience then for someone who doesn't identify as white to go through our conduct system? And what does, what does that look like? And one of the studies that I found was a Carps and Sachs study from 2014, and they really were studying types of adjudication and student learning. So student reported learning and types of adjudication, no surprise, students learn more when we use restorative practices as opposed to administrative practices. If you talk to anybody in conduct, they would be like, duh, of course they do. Yes, we know that. But one of the other things that they found was when they looked at student learning and they pulled out some different demographics, they noted that on six of the student development scales they developed, white students scored higher than black students. And so again, for me, that begs the question, then what is then what are conduct programs made for? Who are they made for? Who are they made to benefit? And there isn't a lot of literature out there about that. So what that led me to through lots of other uh, reading and, and research was really to a qualitative study looking at the experience of black students at a PWI who participate in a student conduct program, specifically around three lenses that I was curious about. Number one, fairness. Um, you know, we, we think of fairness and um, if you look at some white supremacy characteristics of what fairness is, um, you know, fairness, like, objectivity is relative. And we know that what is fair for one student is not fair for another student. And again, I think if you talk to anybody in conduct, they know that. Mm -hmm. um, so specifically around fairness, specifically around learning, what are students learning in our conduct programs or as a result of going through our conduct program, and then influences to academic success. So if we know that students in K through 12, the more that they experience exclusionary discipline, the less likely they are to graduate, the more likely they are to get involved in criminal behavior. What happens at college when um, students are disciplined? What is the influence there to their academic success? We also know that nationally, our rates of graduation, our six-year graduation rates, um, I believe that uh, folks that identify as Asian are first, and then it's white folks. And then at the bottom of that list are um, indigenous folks, but right above that is um, Black and African-American folks. When we look at those retention rates, again, we're seeing a disparate, or graduation rates rather, we're seeing a disparate uh, rate by social identity or by race. So again, there's a lot of factors that that influence that. And what's just always been something that has, has just um, caused me to question, like, why is this happening? Why are more Black students being referred to my office? Why is the language different? And then on the outside of that, I just want to know, you know, in my program, but also in general, what is that experience like for students at a PWI? What is that experience like for them? How would they describe it? You know, what are their thoughts on fairness, on learning? You know, what we do know, the little bit of, of uh, study that we do have, Stimson and Stimson presented at 2020's uh, ASCA uh, conference and talked about their uh, huge quantitative uh, project that they had done where they basically showed that uh, there is a correlation between fairness and learning. And again, if you ask any conduct person, they would tell you, duh, students uh, learn more when they believe that they've been treated fairly. And what Stimson and Stimson found was that for students that identified as female and what they call minority students, so uh, non-white students, that correlation is very strong. It is very strong that for um, those different individuals and different identities, that correlation between fairness and learning is paramount. So if we know that as practitioners, we need to have an understanding of what fairness means to different students. And then we have to 
make sure that we're ensuring that fair process because at the end of the day, if what we are hoping at the end of our conduct process is that students are learning, then we have to make the system fair, we have to make the process fair, and fair is going to look different to different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. That I was, was really like, long. I mean, I, I pass you for your defense. I cannot look. Yes, <laughs> you, you, yes. And there, and there we go. That was, I mean, <laughs> phenomenal. Like episode over, mic drop. I mean, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm just very, I'm, I'm very passionate about this because I think that the the work that we do in conduct when we are making allegations, right? If we are charging students, if we are doing something that is going, you know, we wanna talk about trauma, we wanna talk about using a trauma-informed lens, our process can be traumatic just as much as the precipitating event that brought a student in. So that conduct is sacred work, it is important work, and it is work that has to be explored through multiple lenses and have a very, um, you can't just show up and say, here's the rules, you broke them, you're suspended. That is probably the worst thing that we could do as educators and as people. And if you know you wanna work in conduct, you have to approach it with an equity lens. It has to, it has to, I mean, this, you know, so it's just, this is just Sarah Shop talking, you know, not as a representative of anything, but I think you have to have equity at the focus of the work that you do and fairness and understand that your definition of fairness isn't everybody else's definition of fairness, especially based on your own positionality and the identities that you hold um, and all and the different types of power that you may possess at your institution. You know, we've we've really got to start thinking about looking at our practices, you know, we're not, a, we're not an extension of the criminal justice system. And though the field has swung that way, um, that's, that's not who we are. We're not judge, jury, and executioner. And it is inappropriate and unethical for us to behave in that way. And so I really think that that equity has to be at the, at the center of, of conduct professionals work. I, I mean, the impact that we have on students is more than just them and i've always said Mm -hmm. i said it impacts generations because if you think about it you know there are some students who come into you know our processes who are at universities whose parents grandparents whoever they identify and i'm using that word very loosely right Mm -hmm. somebody may have sacrificed, sold, that you know, whatever it may be, just to make sure that their student could go to college. Um, yes. Someone, parents could be picking up extra hours, extra, and this is really a socioeconomic lens that I'm looking at it from, right? The mm-hmm. students who are not necessarily privileged to have, you know, someone who could just write a check and say, here you go, it is what it is, you know? And so when you start looking at that, someone who has sacrificed, then you look at the student who also is sacrificing, doing whatever it may be to, you know, be able to get their degree. If you expel a student, right, or suspend a student or whatever, any any type of sanction, I see it impacts both prior generations, the current generation of that student in the office, and I'm going to take it a step further. If you expel a student, that could even impact their future generations, right? Their Mm -hmm. ability to have a particular education to provide for their children's future, Mm -hmm. right? 
And yep. we don't look at it from that like lens, but yep. when you start thinking about, I mean, the power that we really have as student conduct professionals in that way, it makes the whimsical, oh, I'm just gonna suspend them. Oh, I'm just gonna expel them. Like all of a sudden that is so much heavier, right? Yes. Um, than just, oh, well, it'll be okay. And so I really, really appreciate the words and really what you shared because I think that needs to be, that needs to be on, on somewhere written down on a contract. Anytime somebody comes into the field of student conduct to say, look, this is what you're getting into. Um, uh-huh. But even thinking about where student conduct started, I know for 2020 ASCA, um, the, what was it? The opening session for the conference? Yes. Yeah, um, we had like Dixon be out like there was a whole thing. What do you remember? Um, like or what really stood out to you? If you if you don't mind me asking just about I, that session and what you took in. So that session, um, I actually so I will share this. Uh, I actually had not been feeling well and I was like, uh, I'm going to be in the audience like I'm not missing this session. If I do nothing else, this conference, like when I found out that James McFadden and Reverend Shepard Moody were going to be there. I was like, oh, sold, done. I'm in. I'm going to the conference. Like this is, for me, it was looking at two people of several people, right? But like at that time, these two people that represented the, a turning point in student affairs history, a turning point in our country's history, a a representation of two people that I'm looking at these folks and I'm thinking about them when they were 18, 19, 20 years old. (laughs) Yes. And the audacity that they had Mm -hmm. to plan a protest, to go through with the whole thing. And then the way that they were manipulated and lied to and completely betrayed by systems that are supposed to protect all people, not just our criminal justice system, but our education system. It is, it is, uh, it is, it was such a miscarriage of justice for them. And I think about, you know, all the details of the Dixon case, finding out, you know, thinking you're arrested, but you're really not arrested. And then you try to go back to school and you find out from the newspaper that you've been expelled and you never had an opportunity to defend yourself. And then I think about, and that whole time I was thinking about the president um, and I can't remember his name right now, but the president of, of Alabama state at the time. And I was thinking about the position that he was put in to have made this decision to expel them from pressure from the government. And then he still got fired a couple months later, like to think about from his perspective, what he was trying to do for the students or maybe not for the students, but to hear from James McFadden and Reverend Moody Shepherd and to hear from, um, Tamara King. Uh, and she said, and, and she's, I've heard her say it a couple of times. She said, you know, do not forget that our profession was built on the blacks of black students. Mm-hmm. And like hearing that and looking at that and looking at everything in the, and the work that we do as protecting those students, right. And not just the ones that are protesting for civil rights that not just those but protecting all of our students rights so these and thinking about like i'm looking at them and i'm thinking like did they know at 18 or 19 years old that they were going to set a course 
for generations of students beyond them. And to your point, their families and their future children. Did they know that they were doing that at the time? Like it was, it was wild to watch and to hear from them and, and to hear, uh, to hear from, uh, Reverend Moody Shepherd to hear her say that that her father lost jobs because of her involvement, but that he told her to keep being involved, keep protesting, keep being an activist. And you know, to deny to deny students an education because they're challenging the system is like the most stupid thing I've ever heard of because that's the whole reason we're educating folks. That's the whole reason that we're here is to educate folks, to help them to ask good questions and be critical thinkers and to challenge things when they see that they're not just or they're not right. And so looking at these folks that that participated in this when they were adolescents and then how that has impacted the field, it was very, very powerful for me and just connected me to the work in a way that um, that I remember when I'm working with an extremely challenging student or an extremely challenging faculty or staff member, I remember, you know, why I do what I do and why when I'm standing in the face of administration or external pressure to do something different, I think about that case. And I think about the individuals at that case. And I think about what was done to them, the trauma, <laughs> the trauma of, a, living their lives in, you know, 1950s, 1960s, Alabama, the trauma of protesting and being what they thought was being arrested and being detained, then the trauma of being kicked out of school. Like, I, it, it's so shocking to me that that happens, but I've also seen things like that happen now where students' rights have been violated. And I think about what trauma have we caused that individual Mm-hmm. what unintended consequences will happen because of that. And so yeah. it, yeah. Where it's interesting what keeps coming to my brain as you say that, honestly, we're activists in our in our roles in student conduct. And I don't think any of us ever think about it because we're here, we're trying to stop, we're gonna, but really if you think about the, like you said, and what you've so eloquently just explained to you, our audience, honestly, how the field started came about because we needed people to be able to step in to say, wait a second, mm-hmm. I understand that this student has done X, Y, Z, but you can't just take away their rights. You yes. can't just make decisions. You can't just, so then, you know, rules came in in 10 days and notice and this and this and all the things that we mm-hmm. follow, you know, to, to, to today and all the court cases, all the legal stuff and and things that Mm -hmm. are still happening and changing and whatever, even in 2021. But really that was the foundation of our entire field. Mm -hmm. And so when we have, you know, those who maybe colleagues who believe that their purpose is to do the opposite of that, it's actually entirely, entirely false. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, if you if you if you want to work in again, if you got into student conduct because you want to remove the disruptors from the community, I got news for you. That's not what we do. We try to help students understand, you know, what is disruptive behavior? What is disorderly conduct? What are these laws? What are these things that 
you've been accused of, of breaking or violating. What does that look like for you? And how do we make this make sense? And, and something that, um, something that has stuck with me that I always think about is the context of the incident and the context of the violation, the charge, whatever. And uh, when I was in graduate school, one of the things that struck me, I had to take a uh, multicultural counseling class. And I remember my professor said, listen, all counseling is multicultural. And I'm like, no, it's not. Not unless you're, you know, like 22 year old me is like, you know, 22 year old, white, cisgender, middle-class background, extremely privileged because I'm going to graduate school. Um, I, I will self, I will absolutely confess a little bit of white savior complex, right? As I'm, as I'm starting to want to be a, a student first professional. And I'm like, no, not all counseling is multicultural counseling. Of course not. Only when you're talking about culture, is it, is it multicultural? And then, you know, I grew up a lot and I got challenged a lot. I got called out. I got called in and I did a lot of reading, did a lot of work on myself and uh, still doing work on myself, still getting called out and called in. Um, absolutely. And I, and I appreciate all those moments for all those opportunities opportunities for growth. But I think what, what has always struck me about that is that culture and identity is part of every conversation I have with a student about every violation, every single one. And I think about that when I'm looking at the incident and I'm looking at a police report or I'm looking at a report from another student and I'm, and I'm assessing the language that's used and I'm trying to understand where the violation occurred if it did. And then I'm talking with the student, I'm getting more information everything has to be viewed through a lens of context and through a lens of, of cultural identities and, and what does this look like and what does this mean for this particular student? And again, that's the work that we do. And that is that protector of student rights, protector of the process. And I think I learned early on in conduct that um, you know fairness, again, is subjective and equality is even subjective. And really, you know, I, I strive more for justice and decolonization than I would necessarily work things like tolerance or acceptance or, or equity and things like that. Um, so I, I do think that on that activism piece, like you had mentioned, when we start to see an abuse of a policy, I think that's our job then to look at, well, why is this policy here, right? Like if it's not a policy that sits in my office and I don't know how other, how other folks do this, but um, at the university I work for now, I have the code of conduct and a couple other policies, but there's like hundreds of policies at the university and some of them are not managed by my office. So I've never seen them until it comes up to the code of conduct, you know, it comes up to conduct as a violation of policy allegation. So then sometimes we have to look at that policy and say, wait a minute, there are some things here that need to be changed or need to be considered. And so sometimes we have to be that advocate or that activist for change of policy, change of procedure, whatever that might be. Um, and again, I don't think necessarily people always think that that's what they're doing when they get into student conduct work. Right, right. I, I mean, I, I, you, are, you are right on it. Um, okay, so let me ask this you know, we definitely have this inherent responsibility as student conduct officers. Do you think that there are times that all of us just forget that? Like everything you just said, like how, what do we do when we forget that? What do we do when we get in those situations? How do we come back from that? How do we remind ourselves of this responsibility of this sacred work as we've talked about? Um, that's a great question. And I, I, I think, answer, honestly, I think it's just, I don't, yeah. I mean, I'm, try, I'm trying to think in my head, like, what do I do when I'm, when I'm really struggling? When I have, 
really challenging situations, sad situations, when I'm dealing with, you know, a really severe and serious incident where there is, where it's, it's one of these cases where I call, it's like sad all around, right? So you've got victims in a case, you've got perpetrators that are facing possible criminal charges and serious jail time. It's going to, it's going to completely transform their life, probably not in a positive way. You've got victims that are going to have trauma the rest of their life. And you've, you know, and then, you know, you can add in attorneys and families and the press and all of these other things, right? So you can add all these other things in here that can really make you lose focus on what our job is and can really, I think that that conduct specifically also can can be a target for uh, pressure from other areas of the institution or even externally to let go of a student to, you know, one of the worst things that will happen is a student will get arrested off campus for some behavior and immediately there's calls from the community to suspend this person on an allegation of a crime, right? Um, not even a conviction, but an allegation. And so, um, and I think it's, it's easy to forget that, you know, you're trying to protect students and protect their rights. And sometimes, I mean, we all know it, students can be jerks. Mm -hmm. Students can be real, really just not pleasant to work with. And it's hard sometimes to remember, like, even though you may not like me, or even though I might not like you, I don't agree with the decisions you're making. I don't agree with what you're doing. It's my job to protect your rights, to protect your process, and to make sure that you have the most fair environment that I can give you for this conduct process. I think for me, one of the things that I keep, um, and it's going to sound really like super cheesy, but I have, uh, I'm a quotes person. So I like quotes on things. I like to reread things. And I have a couple quotes in my office that um, are up on my wall that I look at and that I think about when I'm having a rough day, I will go back to, um, I will go back and I will read um, things that other folks have written about the work that we do. Um, There's some really good stuff in some of the the student conduct books, both the student conduct practice book and the Spectrum model for adjudication. Both of their second editions have just some really great nuggets in there about the work that we do. Um, And it always energizes me to read things that my colleagues write. And it always energizes me to read things that of what I consider to be like people that are like giants in the field of student conduct research or student conduct practice. So I'll do some of that. But I also think um, one of the things that helps me remember why we do what we do is connection to other colleagues. So being involved in different professional groups and professional organizations and really being able to connect with other folks helps me kind of remember or to be able to chat with them about an issue that they're having. You know, I'm a one lady office, so I don't have anybody else to really talk to when uh, there's something going on or I'm, I'm, you know, struggling with the decision. So having colleagues that I can call and talk to, um, is really helpful and helps connect me to the bigger purpose of what we do and why we do what we do. Um, But I think for everybody, that's different. You know, I think everybody's got to figure out how to stay connected to the work and stay connected to the, to the important pieces of the work and not just get bogged down in the day-to-day stressful parts of the work. And maintain that humanity. You know, there's something I always said, um, and I'll never forget this. uh, The very, very first time I had to uh, kick someone out of housing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that 
the VP. I was, I was like, wait, I, I got to actually do it. I got to tell them that they have to go. I like, I actually, I'm like, where are they going to go? Like that, that whole thing. Right. And you know, I remember, you know, doing it, the words, saying it, everything that, you know, you got to go, don't like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The conversation that, you know, we've all had to have. And I remember after that student left my office, I will never forget. I called my mom crying. People don't know this story. I don't think I've ever told it. I called my mom in tears. She was like, like what's wrong? Oh my goodness. And I told her, you know, what I, what I did. And... I knew it was the right thing and policy and whatever, whatever. And the student, mm-hmm. the student mm-hmm. absolutely needed to, like, it was not one, of, you know, very much so. Right. And it was in that moment that I made a decision and I said that whenever I, okay, let me back up. Since then, obviously, conduct, you say it so many times, it becomes, the words become easy but the feeling mm-hmm. never left. And, let, and, I, mm-hmm. and I need to say that part. The words, I can say them so eloquently. I've had to say it so many times, whatever it is. You know how to do it. You know how to pause, break, put, you know, where to break, where to take your breath, where to put the word in front of the other, how to say it, how to respond. It becomes like clockwork, right? But the feeling itself never left me. And I made the decision a long time ago that I said, the moment that the feeling leaves me, it's time for me to leave student conduct altogether mm-hmm. because that means mm-hmm. I've become so jaded, right? Mm-hmm. Or I've lost my humanity or like the part where we talked about that inherent responsibility, right? That means that I've reached a point where it's time for me to go. And that's just something I, a decision I made, right? For myself mm-hmm. and everyone may have their different thing and whatever it is, but that's really where that came from. It came from, you know, that feeling of remembering and always trying to remember that the person sitting across from me, I think we forget that is a human being, right? Yes. Who has their own set of issues, life, this, this, that, Mm -hmm. whether they did it, didn't do it, whatever, however, it's still impactful. And so that's something that I said years ago and I've stuck with it. You know what I mean? I still, I still say it. I know my roles change and I've gone from being at the university to now being, you know, full-time with ASCA. But, you know, one day if I choose to go back to the university setting, you know, I still, again, still that, that, uh, that threshold and that bar that I really hold, you know, to say, hey, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of a thing. So, okay, well, let me ask. Well, oh, go ahead. Well, let me, let me just comment. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that was such a beautiful example of the other side of conduct work that our colleagues don't see, that our students don't see that other folks don't understand that these decisions are difficult, regardless of circumstance, regardless of students are totally deserving of being removed, right? They've violated multiple policies. They've, you know, whatever, whatever. It is, it is never an easy decision. And I have similar stories every time we suspend or separate a student. It is, it is a rough day for me because even though the student is totally deserving, uh, most of the time, uh, it, uh, hopefully all of the time, but like, even though there's a clear reason for it, you're exactly right. Like, like that is 
a person, another human being, and this decision will have rippling effects for their life and their family's life. And so it there is a heavy weight to the work that we do. And I think sometimes we also, you've heard me say trauma a couple of times, we also don't necessarily process the trauma that we go through. Um, the vicarious and secondhand trauma when working with victims or alleged uh, perpetrators and um, alleged offenders. Um, and then in situations like that, when a student is separated, so. Yeah. That's why I got a therapist years ago. Everyone knows, I'm so mm-hmm. open about it. Like, it's not like a secret. I'm I'm like, hi, my name's Alexandra. I love going to therapy. Like, like that's my thing. Oh, yeah. I have no shame about it. Um, but that's really where it came from because that constant, I mean, the conversations that we're having, you think about that and it's real. You know, that could be a whole nother podcast episode. And I think it needs to be the, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the title would be, but like the flip side of student conduct, the, the tears, the... I mean, people see us and we're the ones at the institution that we have to be the one to say, you, that is the hardest thing ever. And what people don't see is the other side. I mean, I've cried in my car before. I've been in my office, like, what am I doing? I mean, that whole other side that we have to shoulder knowing Mm -hmm that we are the person that's saying this, that's doing this, that other people get to hide behind the fact that it's my face and my name that gets to be the yeah. one that says it, even though you are the one who wants to, like, woo, that's a, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a whole nother That's podcast. a whole other, that's I mean, a whole other podcast though. That's I mean, a good idea. <laughs> let me stop there. Maybe it's the one you need to come back. Cause that, that let, let, <laughs> let's just, cause that, yeah, that's a whole nother one. So I'm going to stop that. Sarah, thank you for, I mean, for just being here. I always want to ask this question. Um, is there a book, a podcast, a song, a recipe, anything that you would recommend? You did give us some, like you kind of did, like you gave us some books, you gave us some stuff, but is there anything that you would recommend to our audience that's giving you life, that's bringing you joy, that's all of the yes. things? Yes, because, and I thought, and I knew you were going to ask me this because you told me. And so I thought about it and I was like, you know, there's so many scholarly things I could recommend, right? I'm right in the middle of reading the book, Hood Feminism, amazing recommendation. Um, You know, and that's, you know, for your scholarship brain and I'm, and I'm in the midst of like looking at some other things, but, 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 but I have a ritual and a routine when I am driving to work that I try to listen to songs that are going to uh, pump me up for the day and put me in a good headspace. And so I recently found this, and I also love mashups. So okay. I'm a big fan of, of bands or singer-songwriters that do covers of other songs and mash them together. So I recently found a mashup. Uh, it's by a band called Pomplamoose, and they mixed uh, Bill Withers' Lovely Day and okay. Lizzo's Good As Hell. It is a banger. And it is a great little bebop song in the morning. And I listen to it and I'm like, it combines some really good music. Um, it's on Spotify. Yeah. What is it So called? that's on Spotify. Um, it's called, actually, I can tell you, they also have some other, they have some other original songs, but what they did during quarantine, this band, and I just discovered them, but what they did in 2020 was they put out a music video every week for 52 weeks while they were in quarantine. So they collaborated with musicians all over the world and they put out a lot of mashups. Okay. And um, yeah, so if you just look up, um, well, don't play it, Sarah. Okay. If you look up, um, it's just called Lovely Day slash Good as Hell. And it's by the band Pomplamoose, P-O-M-P-L-A-M-O-O-S-E. 
And they've got some ah, great other mashups. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna play this right after. Um, because I yeah. you have to listen. To it. It's such a like, great. It's such a good sunshine vibe. Songs that I like totally. Yeah. As we said, vibe with. Look at us. Mm-hmm. Look at us having the language of the arts. <laughs> I'm so proud of us. Um. So I'm gonna. We're gonna have to. Yeah. That's gonna be my thing. Thank you for that. I hope that people enjoy it. Of course. It. They're going to love it. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll put all the contact information for you in the show notes if anyone wants to reach out. They also can see you at Gearing. Let's say that really quickly. Um, yes. Tell people what you're doing at Gearing this summer. So I am a faculty fellow in the Equitable and Inclusive Practices track, which is its inaugural year for this track. And I'm so excited. I have been a long, well, not long time, but I've done uh, three different Gearing experiences and I loved them. Two of them were in person. One was virtual. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be back as as a faculty fellow on this track. And we are, we have got five full days of um, self-reflection and, uh, looking at codes and looking at processes and understanding equity and inclusion from some different angles. We're going to talk about assessment. We're going to talk about adjudication and we're going to talk about um, even some broader campus issues that uh, we should really be looking at through an equity through an equity and uh, inclusivity lens. Um, so I'm really excited and huge shout out to our uh, track coordinator, Dr. James Lorello and our other faculty member, Dr. Kyle Williams. They have both been awesome to work with and um, it's, it's going to be, a really, I think it's going to be a really good time. And I think it's going to be a very informative, um, informative couple days. And, and really, I'm excited to see how the track goes and how it goes this summer and really looking forward to um, where more work can come out to the rest of ACSA, especially around equity and inclusivity. Um, I think, again, you know, we, we've both talked about how important those those concepts are to the work that we do. So I'm thrilled that uh, there's a whole track dedicated to it this summer. Um, and it'll it'll be really cool to see what what comes out of that. Well, I'm excited. I mean, I hope everyone joins your like your chat because I mean, just listening to you. I'm like, oh, I want to go sit in it. I'm excited. I just I love it. So thank you so much for being here, being on the show. You're definitely coming back. I'm not giving you a choice. You just have to. So. <laughs> I'd say sorry, but I'm not. No, don't say sorry. I've definitely come back. And thank you so much. This has been super fun. I love to nerd out about conduct and the work that we're doing in the literature. And so anytime I get a chance to talk about it with somebody that's interested, um, well, I'm here a, for it. My favorite place yeah. where we nerd out about conduct. Yes. Know, our lives, Absolutely. literally. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Well, bye everyone. We will catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.